Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, this is Scott. For a few years now, I've planned a series called The Ancient World Spotlight, where I'd post occasional interviews and one-shot episodes on topics related to the show. Well, what you have here is the first of those episodes, one dealing with Alexander the Great and his experiences in Central Asia. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a few things. The first is that I will, of course, be continuing my ongoing The Ancient World Theia series on the Seleucids. Just consider these spotlight episodes kind of bonus episodes that'll pop up from time to time. I also wanted to mention that I'll be away on vacation for the next few weeks, and apart from posting the second part of this interview sometime in October, it'll likely be later in the year before I continue the Theia storyline. Lastly, I wanted to mention that there are a few minor audio issues with this episode, so sorry about that, and hopefully it won't be too distracting. That said, let's dive on in. My guest today is Tristan Hughes, an historian and writer with a definite passion for ancient military history. Having graduated from Edinburgh University in summer 2018, he currently works at History Hit TV as a web editor. He's also currently writing his first book with Pen and Sword Publishing, titled Alexander's Successors at War, The Perdiccas Years. Good to finally meet you. I'm glad we could make this work. Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. Good to uh, meet you via Skype, too. I think I first came across you probably via Twitter, um, but pretty quickly came across your Battles of the Ancients website. Um, which is which I found to be just a tremendous resource for military historians. So thanks for all the great work on that. Oh, thank you for the kind words. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So, but I know the thing we, we both really share an interest in and the thing we wanted to talk about today was our common fascination with Hellenistic Bactria. 100%. 100%. (laughs) So I wanted to start off and I guess frame things a little bit with a, a quote from Uh, historian Frank Holt, uh, his wonderful book, Lost World of the Golden King. So I'm quoting here, Along the banks of the Amu Darya and the foothills of the Hindu Kush, Bactria once thrived as an independent kingdom ruled by the descendants of Western colonists. These wayward Greeks, remnants of Alexander the Great's army, waged incessant wars with their neighbors and with each other, growing richer all the while. 
They minted the largest gold and silver coins in the world, governed, it was said, a thousand cities, conquered deep into India, which Alexander had failed to do, and then vanished. Their history morphed into legend, until even that was lost except for the names of a few phantom kings lingering in the quiet corners of classical and Renaissance literature. So I think that quote is pretty effective at capturing, you know, some, my fascination and what drew me to the uh, to the Greco-Bactrians. If you can recall, what? How did you first become interested? Well, quite a similar kind of thing, right? It, I think your quote really emphasized it. Is the fact that it's this this, this Greek kingdom, like on the a far edge of the known world. It's exotic, as it were. And um, you, you, it's shrouded in myth, but at the same time, you have these, you know, snippets of actual, like, factual information with which you can combine with, like, archaeological evidence to, to create this, uh, an interesting narrative of, like, the kingdom. And, like, like, so one of the most fascinating facts in that, you, your quote, um, kind of mentioned it just then, was, like, a the largest coinage in antiquity, you know, was actually made in the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, that remarkable gold coin of eucratides you know I, I can't remember the exact measurements but just things like that it's just so remarkable um so maybe let's get a little bit into the history so the oldest uh culture that we know of in the region you know we're going back to the bronze age so there's a culture called the oxus culture or the bactria margiana archaeological complex which is centered on the Oxus River. It goes back as far, I think latest estimates are about 2400 BC, quite a ways back in time. And there's some interesting finds related to that culture, which, you know, were pretty exquisite. I remember seeing an axe head one time in, in the Met in New York that was just amazing from the region. Um, but then moving into recorded history, um, I guess the regions, you know, first recorded and documented when Cyrus the Great uh, moved into it, you know, in the mid-6th century BC. And then, you know, following Cyrus's conquests, you know, the region was essentially under Persian control for the next couple centuries. And then you get the arrival of a certain bright young lad named Alexander the Great. <laughs> and uh, so maybe you can help us take up the story from there a little bit. Yes, well, well... As you as you say, it was good. Like with the background and stuff like that, you know, the Persian Empire, Bactria has become over the two hundred years of Achaemenid rule, and it's become one of the most important regions in the whole of the Persian Empire. And one of the key reasons for this is a military reason. You mentioned the Oxus culture, you know, because all the cities, like the main flourishing cities of Bactria, were, were spaced all along like the banks of the Oxus or its tributaries, you know, the most famous being the city of Bactra itself. Um, and so they're really good fertile lands from where they were able to rear these really powerful horses. And these horses, uh, Bactria, the natives of Bactria soon became renowned as like these famous formidable cavalrymen. And, you know, from the plains of Plataea in Greece, all the way, of course, to the plain of Galgamela in 331 BC uh, with Alexander the Great, between that time and in those battles especially, the Bactrian cavalry are viewed as like the Persian elite horsemen. Right. Uh, and, it, and it's a reputation uh, well-deserved, as we'll, we'll, we'll see. But going back, I'm not going to do the too much on that. As you said, um, so Alexander the Great, he's defeated the Persian king Darius III, you know, in the two critical battles, the Battle of Issus and the Battle of Gargamela. 
He's conquered the four main administrative capitals of the Achaemenid Empire, Ecbatana, Babylon, Susa, and famously he's destroyed the royal capital at Persepolis, the royal Achaemenid capital. And in, I think it's uh, mid-330 BC, Darius is killed whilst he's attempting to flee eastwards. He is intending to reach Bactria, where he can raise a new army to, to still oppose Alexander. But he is killed by one of his subordinates, a man called Bessus. And once again, there's another link to Bactria here because Bessus was uh, formerly the satrap or governor of Bactria. Now, following this, Bessus, with a small entourage, he retreats. He basically follows what Darius was going to do. He retreats to Bactria, where he hopes to conjure up a new army with which to oppose Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great, he goes in in pursuit, and he, he kind of takes a kind of, uh, like uh, a path logistical for logistical reasons. He basically does like a horseshoe path, as it were. He he misses out Margiana uh, and doesn't cross the, the the huge desert there. He goes uh, southwards towards Kandahar and Herat, where he founds a, a couple of cities. Then he goes through the Hindu Kush, and eventually he arrives in the region of Bactria in the spring of 329 BC. Now in that time Bessus has uh, he's been he's been in Bactria and he's hoping to gain this to amass this large army with which to oppose Alexander's arrival. And to be honest he probably he had good reason for thinking this. In the past the Bactrians had very much been open to supporting challenges to like uh, the Achaemenid throne. They'd done it with Darius the 1st for instance. But when Alexander gets there, rather than being confronted by like a hostile Bactria, city after city uh, welcome him with open arms. And he faces basically no, um, no opposition whatsoever. Bessus is forced to flee. He has to flee north of the Oxus River into the neighbouring region of Sogdia, where he similarly is unable to find any support. And he's eventually handed over by his former uh, allies. Uh, and has a gruesome execution at Alexander's hand. At least to Alexander's mind, the resistance of Bessus, you know, has been eliminated. So therefore, he probably has a feeling that, you know, with with that end, you know, the region's going to be coming under his control. But then what happens kind of after that? Well, 100%, 100%. You know, he hasn't had much um, resistance whatsoever. In fact, when he actually goes into Sogdia in pursuit of Bessus, just before he captures him, he leaves basically a token garrison, like a really small garrison in Bactria. That's how confident he is in believing that Bactria has been completely subdued. And he goes north into Sogdia. He gets, he gets control of Bessus. And similarly, in Sogdia, he thinks that the Sogdians kind of welcome him. Uh, well, they don't, well, like um, they don't oppose him, as it were, at least for the start. What Alexander does is he he heads north north to the northern, I guess, uh, quite a permeable, it's quite a fluid border, but like uh, a physical border, as it were, like in the Yaxartes River, the uh, Syrodaria River today. Right. And there you mentioned cyrus the great's conquest earlier that was where cyrus had drawn basically the limit of his accommodated empire that was where he fa- he famously founded his uh, city of cyropolis and alexander does a similar thing he founds alexandria escate or or alexandria the furthest and i, I think you went there didn't you scott or- 
It's yeah. It, uh, recently, I was lucky enough to um, to travel through a portion of Uzbekistan, and when I was in Tashkent, uh, in Uzbekistan, I was within tens of miles of the location of uh, of Alexander the Farthest. So I was very very excited about that. I nice. uh, didn't get a chance to actually visit the ruins, but uh, it would have been fantastic. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> very lucky. Well, I think they're still debating exactly where it is, but if you could find the ruins, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. Uh, okay. But basically, Alexander, he founds um, Alexandria Escutin. He's very much an, so a key uh, modern source, which I, I, I'm looking at for this, is, is Frank Holtz, who we mentioned earlier. And um, basically, the ancient sources say the, the reason why soon the Sogdian nobles and like the region of Sogdia becomes hostile to him is because Alexander he invites all the Sogdian nobles and some of the Bactrian nobles to to a meeting at Bactra and they fear that that is where they're going to get arrested and they're going to be uh, they're going to basically lose their status however it's actually more likely that it was Alexander's founding of Alexandria Skate which caused this change in opinion in Sogdia. And the reason for this is as follows. Now, when Alexander found, founds Alexandria the furthest, he is thinking very much in the European frame of mind. He's seen the, the north of Macedonia and his father, King Philip II's creation of a frontier in Thrace with his uh, creation of cities such as Philippopolis and Kabyle. And... Alexander has this idea of creating this physical border, you know, to 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 emphasize, you know, the borders of his empire. And that's what he does with founding Alexandria Escate. He wants to mark the Yaxartes River as his frontier. Now, I say in European terms, it's nothing new. But for the Sogdians, this was something completely uh, against what they believed as well, or what they were used to, because north of the Yaxartes River, you have the nomadic tribes, the eastern Scythians, or the eastern Scythians, or the Sakai. Although they were, they had, they shared a lot of um, culture with the Sogdians further south, and they were very much intermingled with each other quite a lot. So the Yaxartes River wasn't really seen as a border between the two regions it was like seen as, as very fluid it's very permeable but alexander by creating alexandria the furthest this military colony with a prime purpose of you know erecting this physical border to basically block out the nomads to the north this angers the sogdians for that very reason and because of that they do not want this city there now they see that as alexander you know basically putting his imprint on their society they don't like that so oh very quickly the sogdian nobles that were formerly allied to alexander across the region they rebel against him they managed to levy a, a well small bands of sogdian guerrilla fighters and over the next two years, Alexander faces this really hard, um, hard-pressed revolt, mainly from the Sogdians. It must be noted that actually very few Bactrians actually take part in the revolt. It is mainly a Sogdian revolt. nobles who's revolting is Oxyartes, who served Bessus, and he was the former satrap of Batria and Sogdia. And then also, this is where you get the the entry onto the scene of the Sogdian warlord Spitamines, the father of uh, of Apama, who ends up being Seleucus I's wife. 
Mm, yeah, and Spitamini's. Yeah, he is uh, one of the most remarkable generals of the period. I mean, it's no um, easy fact to say that actually, that the two years Alexander faces really opposing Spitamini's are probably the hard, militarily the hardest of his career, and it is against Spitamini's that Alexander suffers his worst defeat or his worst military setback. And this is, I think, this happens in three two nine BC. Alexander, he's still at the Yaxartes River. He's still trying to finish off building uh, Alexandria the farthest. And he receives word further south from the Sogdian capital where he has a, a Macedonian garrison. Uh, it's called Marakanda, today's Samarkand. Uh, well, we believe it is. Um, he receives word that the Sogdian warlord Spitamenes, he's gathered about, I think it's about 1,000 or 1,500 Sogdian cavalrymen, this strong cavalry entourage, and he's laid siege to uh, Marakanda, which only has a small garrison. So Alexander, he dispatches uh, a few of his generals and his Sogdian translator uh, as head commander, uh, with mainly with a force consisting largely of uh, Greek Hellenic mercenaries, uh, mainly hoplites, you know, wielding aspis shield and spear and heavy infantry. Some cavalry and some light infantry would have accompanied him as well. But with this force, uh, the man in charge was a guy called Farnukes, said. Um, and Farnukes, he leads this force south. He scares away Spitamenes from the walls of Marikanda. The siege is lifted. But immediately, Farnukes, he goes in pursuit of Spitamenes. And this was the huge mistake because Spitamenes, he knows the landscape. He knows he's in his home region, as it were. And for the Greek mercenaries especially, and for uh, the Macedonians, this is still a completely alien landscape. I mean, you're far away from any access to the sea. Uh, the climate was notably different. You've got deserts. Spitamini's retreats probably passed the river into the deserts. Um, and, it's a, and for them, it's a highly alien landscape. And what Spitamini's does, he's reinforced by um, nomadic allies. And uh, they lure Farnakes and the Macedonians and the, uh, the, and the Hellenic troops and their allies he leads them into a trap where Spitamenes and his cavalry, they attack them from all sides. And what follows basically is a slaughter. Mm-hmm. And I said it's the worst setback of Alexander the Great's career. And everyone seems to forget this, this, uh, this, this battle, but it's one of the most significant, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's a terrible setback for Alexander. And this leads into the next point, which is the fact that what it also does is that it raises the anger among the hoplite mercenaries in Alexander the Great's army. And the reason for that is because just before the the Polytimetus River disaster, Alexander has received from Antipater in the West 8,000 new Hellenic mercenaries, like with spear and shield, these these heavy infantrymen. But but their loyalty is dubious because almost all of them had previously (laughs) been fighting against the Macedonians, against Antipater, for the Spartan king Aegis III during the anti-Macedonian revolt, I think, at 331 BC. Now, when Antipater defeats Aegis, he has all these mercenaries, formerly in Spartan service, basically at his mercy, as it were. And he doesn't kill them. He doesn't kill them because... (laughs) And he can't keep them in Greece because he knows that they are... It's a small professional army, as it were. And he can't get in Greece because if someone else comes along, Athens, there's already um, anti-Macedonian 
sentiment really high there with people like Lycurgus, Hyperides, Demosthenes. So he can't keep them in, in Europe. And what he decides then is he decides to send them, he has to send reinforcements anyway, and he sends them east to join Alexander in the Far East. He gets rid of them, as it were. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. And Alexander, he receives these 8,000 new mercenaries. They said their loyalty is dubious, but now they're in Bactria with him. And it's likely some of these mercenaries were the mercenaries that went and were massacred at the Polytometus River. Now, you can imagine these mercenaries, they're already not too fond of the Macedonians. They've basically been forced into the middle of the far edges of the known world, probably having no choice whatsoever. And now they've just heard that 2,000 of their comrades, because of inadequate leadership by Alexander's uh, companions, some of his uh, subordinates, uh, have just been massacred. So you can imagine that there's this huge amount of um, dissent boiling in Alexander's ranks, which, which, is, um, which, is, which is just getting higher and higher. And when Alexander, after a couple of years in, in Sogdia, Spitamines, he's, he's, a, he's a complete nightmare for Alexander. He's probably one of <laughs> Alexander's greatest foes. He, he arguably is Alexander's greatest foe. And I say that with difficulty because I always used to think Memnon of Rhodes was, was probably more significant. But I think Spitamines does uh, top that. Spitamines, he even attacks the citadel of Bactria in the heart of Bactria. And he basically, I believe he sacks the city or he lures the garrison out and he annihilates them as well. So he inflicts more than one bad defeat on Alexander. When he's finally captured and handed over, I believe he's handed over and then killed, it signals near the end of the revolt. And you then mention Oxiates, the other Sogdian noble. Alexander has to besiege all these rock fortresses, which cost him a lot of men you know these are almost impregnable rock fortresses and logistically they're far away from the rivers they're built to hold out and alexander he's got the it's it's impressive that he's able to capture these rock fortresses but they also takes a lot of manpower from his army but eventually he realizes that to to quell the revolt he marries the daughter of Oxiates, Roxana, the friend right. Roxana. And uh, it's quite funny that Arian and Curtis and all of them say, oh, the, he did this primarily for love, or that there's this idea that he did it for <laughs> love. But you can really see, and if you also look at the, the marriages that his father did as well, Philip, you know, it, the, the diplomatic reasons for it are very clear. I mean, this... It, it seems pretty yeah. straightforward considering the experience he just had, you know, trying to subdue them. So it, it very much makes sense. I one of the other things that was interesting to me when I was looking at this a bit is I don't think people realize how much time Alexander spent in Central Asia. It was essentially the better part of three years that he spent here. And the vast majority of that, you know, as you say, was trying to put down this very, very challenging, you know, re- revolt, which, which again, I think, like you say, he ended up not so much, you know, being able to do it through arms as through a, you know, political arrangement. So... You're completely right. I mean, and, you know, when you, when you think of it, you know, Alexander the Great within, well, according to the sources, you know, within you know, five years, he's conquered, you know, he's defeated Darius at Galgamela. Five years since crossing into Asia, he basically owns the whole of like all the way stretching to Mesopotamia and Media. Yeah, within five years, he's at Bactria. He's at the doorstep of Bactria. And as you say, for the next three years, he's stuck in this region because he's had <laughs> to face these rebels and they don't give up.
it's not too long after this, I believe, that Alexander starts pushing into India. During Alexander's reign, are there any other, um, you know, large-scale uh, revolts in either Bactria or Sogdia, or, or does the political, you know, peace kind of hold for a bit? Well, no. Um, first of all, must, uh, must be noted, you know, when Alexander, he does cross the Hindu Kush and they do leave Bactria, the Macedonians, and, and all his army. You can imagine the sigh of relief that must have gone over all of his troops, especially his <laughs> European troops, you know, just just leaving this God forsaken land. And this is important. This is important, you know, especially his Macedonians, uh, how, you know, the sense of relief that they were finally, you know, leaving this land, which has caused them so much, uh, tri- so much trouble, right. so much death for their for comrades who serve them of course you've also had the death of Clytus the black right uh, alexander's cause you know during the, at the high, height of that the i think not, you've had the pages conspiracy you've calisthenes yeah. death as well not great for morale definitely no exactly exactly and so you can the thing is that alexander he can't leave there without leaving a garrison there and if we quickly go back to this and i'll talk about the the revolt because it's important to understand the revolt in his lifetime yeah. Those dissident Greek mercenaries, Alexander knows that they're obviously they're angry, and the Polytemetus River disaster probably, um, I said it just heightens these tensions. And Alexander knows he's got to leave a garrison in Bactria, Sogdia, mainly on the frontier posts, you know, basically to fight off um, small marauding bands of Sogdians, which were said the region still yet wasn't fully pacified. Um, and one of the ideas, he does not want to take these dissident Greek mercenaries, the Hellenic mercenaries, into India. They're too much of a burden, and he can't trust them. I think the key reason there, in my personal opinion, from my research, is that he doesn't trust them. And so he leaves a huge garrison in Bactria and Sogdia, mainly in Sogdia, but also in Bactria, of 20, I think, I believe it's about, uh, I think it's like 13,000, 15,000 men. And a large proportion of them, almost all of them, are either the Hellenic mercenaries, the, the hoplites and the distant ones, um, and some Macedonians, like mainly those who are either too old or injured for service, you know, they had right. to uh, They're not happy about being left in this alien landscape. Uh, they really don't want to be left there. But for Alexander, it's a great solution for getting rid of these, you know, these troubling soldiers. So Alexander leaves Bactria, I think he leaves in, it's either 327 or 326 BC. Uh, and he goes into the Indus Valley and he does all his, uh, you know, his, his invasions and his, his battles at the Despies and all that, right. all that down. When Alexander the Great's army is in India, for the Greek mercenaries in Bactria, first they put up with it for bits because they know Alexander's alive and they actually, they probably, they probably do fear. They, they, they fear doing anything unless Alexander comes back with a heavy fist and, you know, he crushes them and he's shown in the past that he's, he's, he can be merciless at times to cement his authority. But then, a rumour reaches Bactria and Sogdia, and the Greek mercenaries, especially in Bactria and Sogdia, that Alexander has died whilst campaigning in India. And this is after he assaults the stronghold, uh, the stronghold of the Mali tribe, where he gets an arrow in his lung, I believe it is. And so this rumour reaches Bactria and Sogdia, and the Greek mercenaries, they see it as the time to revolt. And so this is the time, you know, to gather together and to start their anabasis, as it were, their journey home through the whole of Asia, are back to the Greek heartlands. You mustn't remember, like, although that seems like such an audacious logistical task, these soldiers, I mean, they were desperate to get home. They wanted to get home. So they were desperate to leave Bactria. And, and what happens is 
this party forms this this political party forms in uh, in in the center of Batria and, and a Greek mercenary general called Athenodorus he with a small band he uh, I think he overthrow he, he captures Batra he kills most likely he kills the Macedonian satrap he's getting ready to march home with it and he's got a large thousands of Greek mercenaries I think are going to support him there and then concrete news reaches Batria that Alexander is actually very much alive yeah <laughs> it's yeah. it's always funny when that news catches you at the, at a very at a particularly critical moment like that when you've already kind of committed to a course of action exactly right you, well you you you've you like you say committed to a course of action athenodorus has crossed his rubicon at this time there's no going back so he's still but but quite a few greek mercenaries they leave his cause it seems likely they did and he gathers a small a band of people and he prepares basically to lead them home but just before he gets off things get even worse because Athenodorus gets assassinated basically uh, there's a bit of stasis in Bactria for a bit it's like the, the the greek commanders are kind of confused whether shall we kill the guy who you know who's now usurped this guy called uh, bite on or shall we not and and stuff like that and then it goes on and on but eventually a bit of luck in it as well bite on the man who has orchestrated the killing of athenodorus he is uh, rescued as it were from execution and he with a thing about three thousand other greek mercenaries start marching home to greece wow starts <laughs> Stop. So they've because, got their their dog-eared copy of, of Xenophon's Anabasis, you know, for a guidebook, and, and they're gonna they're gonna do it. Okay. Well, it's, it's it's remarkable. It's remarkable. They like, I mean, according to Curtius, they apparently they do make it. Uh, I believe he says they do make it home, or it suggests that they do make it home. But but that's the revolt that you have in Batria during Alexander the Great's lifetime. You still got many Greek mercenaries still in Batria whilst Alexander's alive, but. From 325 BC, you know, barely two years after Alexander's left Batria, you've already got, you know, this, this, this first revolt, as it were. Returning from India, you know, after this whole affair, uh, you know, kind of subsides, uh, he doesn't end up spending much more time in Bactria or in Central Asia. I think essentially from that point forward, the thoughts start turning toward, you know, home and or at least, you know, Babylon, in my understanding. Does that sound about right? Yeah, uh, no, he never goes back to Bactria. And I, to be honest, I don't think the Macedonian soldiers would have let him. And as you say, he starts thinking very much on the west on babylon on the center of his empire and future campaigns not in the east but in the west it's a key thing with his successes as well um apart from seleucus where do they always dream to have their empires you know by the mediterranean not in the far east that is huge change when alexander dies in 323 bc it's one of the greatest political shake-ups uh, the world has ever seen if you think brexit's bad now i mean you should have seen <laughs> this back then um the, like um it, it's 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 no clear air as it were within 48 hours of alexander's death 48 hours the room in which alexander the greats died in macedonian blood is like is spilt on the walls of the room because there's, <laughs> there's a fight between some of the generals led by a guy called perdicus and the infantry led by an infantry general called Meliega, and they come to blows in the actual room that Alexander expired. Within 
48 hours of his death. It's remarkable to learn that stasis. And that whole week, that whole week in Babylon, where there is this crisis between uh, the infantry by Meliega and their choice of king and the generals who want someone else or they want a regency or they all have different aims basically they can't agree on anything it's a remarkable week in Hellenistic history which just definitely deserves more attention but after the dust has settled and all that is the, man, the main man that comes out on top is a guy called Perdiccas now Perdiccas he's, he's the highest ranking general in Alexander the Great's army when he dies and he is contested by famous other successors such as Ptolemy uh, mainly Ptolemy but also Leonatus um, Perdiccas does become regent uh, for Alexander's simple minded half brother Philip Aridaeus III and now Alexander's great infant son Alexander IV the first big test he faced after, the, after all these generals have left Babylon to go to their own, their own new governorships is from Bactria from nowhere else but Bactria because <laughs> yeah, and you know how like the last Bactria revolt erupted when they heard news of Alexander's death but they were stopped because when they heard more concrete news that's why a lot of Greek Bactrians out there Greeks stayed out there imagine the reaction when they actually hear concrete confirmation that Alexander the Great is really dead this time the garrisons in Bactria and Sogdia great upheaval basically the frontier posts are completely emptied and over over a period of months because it was quite this logistically this was a remarkable achievement but then the the greek mercenaries managed to assemble an army of twenty three thousand men filtered out from all the places in bactria sogdia probably some in nearby margiana aracosia and they're all mustered together under a guy, the leadership of a, under the leadership of a mercenary general called Philon. They all start mustering together for a great march home. Now, of course, that would take a couple of months to complete, logistically wise. You know, getting all the supplies and getting all the people together. And it's in that time that Perdiccas in Babylon he hears of this revolt in Bactria. Now, at the same time, we've got revolts springing up in other parts of the empire. I mean, in Cappadocia, in Asia Minor, you've got this powerful Persian warlord called Ariarates, basically running riots and having complete control with an army of 40,000-odd or so. In Europe, you've got the Athenians uh, and a powerful mercenary army under the command of Leosthenes, waging, basically besieging the Macedonian viceroy Antipater uh, in, in southern Thessaly. And so you have these outbreaks in Europe, in Central Asia, and now in Bactria. But for Perdiccas, it's the revolt in Bactria, which is the most serious, the most grave for him. And the hmm. reason for it is quite simple. It's because in the West, with the Athenians and their allies, there are a, a plethora of well-known, famous, formidable generals, each with their own small army nearby who can go to help out. And that's eventually what they do. You have figures first where you have Leonatus, and then you have the more formidable Craterus. They both go over to help Antipater. So you have this plethora of, of remarkable generals in the West with their own powerful armies. But in the East, it's a completely different matter. There is no large, substantial, significant army that I can see between Perdiccas and the royal army in Babylon and Bactria. 23,000 men, they're going through your lands. They're going to they're gonna basically um, pillage the whole area. The majority of these would have been mercenaries. They would have been veteran, you know, veterans of the frontiers. These would have been formidable fighters. 
and that's what makes Perdiccas, in my opinion, I think he, he gets so scared is that he realises that this this huge army, this formidable army, is coming his way, and he needs to stop them before they start laying waste the empire in the east. He needs the nucleus of his force to be soldiers that he knows are formidable soldiers too, so he needs them to be the Macedonians that he's got in his royal army. Now, he's only got a limited number. He's got about 10,000. And remember what we were saying earlier, the Macedonians uh, hated their time in Batra, they hated Far East. In the end, Perdiccas is forced to select them by lots. He has to choose them by lots. You know, the unlucky ones have to go. They're forced to go back east. And uh, that's the level of anger that you can feel the Macedonians were going back to this hated land. So they start marching east, but they're obviously they're going to be reinforced by a large number of troops from the garrisons of the governors in the east. But these troops wouldn't have been able to contest the, they wouldn't have been able to contest the uh, Phylon's force without aid from the royal army in Babylon. And in command, Perdiccas places Python. So Python with three thousand men, he marches east. He's reinforced by about, I think it's about sixteen thousand, seventeen thousand. Uh, troops from the governors in the east so there would have been there would have been some greek mercenaries still fighting for perdiccas from these garrisons there would have been a lot of asian troops from places like there have been persians there have been medians there have been arachosians there have been uh, mardians like all these remarkable troops they would all have gone together to fight against phylon and they line up for battle i think it's around um the end of 323 bc or the beginning of 322 okay Python, he goes to Bactria, he faces off against Phylon's army on this field, and it looks like, at the start, when the lines do clash, it looks like Phylon's going to win. It looks like the Greeks in Bactria are going to win. They outnumber the Macedonian, uh, Python's army, and they also, arguably, they arguably of higher quality overall, because most of them, or almost all of them, are veteran soldiers. But at the crucial moment... One thing that Python has on his side is that he has the he-, he has the wealth of the Persian Empire behind him, the Achaemenid Empire, and no one is completely uh, impenetrable to bribes. <laughs> immune, correct? Immune, yeah, exactly. Okay, immune, fine. There we go. No one is completely immune to bribes, and Python is, he gets a spy to infiltrate the enemy army, and he manages to bribe one of the. Uh, mercenary generals in Phylon's army who commands 3,000 men, a man called Litodorus, to abandon Phylon and his men in the heat of battle. Hmm. He does that. Letodorus and his men, they go to a nearby hill, they watch the battle, and panic spreads among Phylon's force. They believe that they're being surrounded. Um, and after that, the revolt is basically crushed. They pretend to have a reconciliation ceremony between the defeated Greek mercenaries and the Macedonians. But during the heart, in the middle of the ceremony, the Macedonians, remember, they're completely, they're angry at being come, come back to this land. They don't like these mercenaries one bit. They're the reason they've had to come back here. They take out their swords and a slaughter ensues. ensues <laughs> wow. The red mist, the red mist descends. It truly does. And Python was likely in on it. I mean, there was this idea that Python wants to forge his empire this great empire in the Far East with the defeated Greek mercenaries and the Macedonians. But then you think of it, the Macedonians would never have allowed this. That's it. That's basically the Bactrian revolt. Many of the Greek mercenaries, almost all of them are slaughtered. Those that do remain in Bactria stay there. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it and your expertise, especially in the all the you know great details on on you know the Bactrian adventures of Alexander and and uh, and and the revolts, etc. And then the uh, in the aftermath, especially that was you know a lot of that's new information to me. It's very very interesting, and I and I definitely look forward to your forthcoming book. It's an absolute pleasure, and yeah, the book will be out. Um, I think. Remember 2021, sometime around there. But look, look out for it. Alexander's successes at war, um, part one. But you'll see, you'll see. <laughs> well, thanks again. I very much appreciate it. No, thank you, thank you. I absolutely loved it. 